Amen. Hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be a great week. Hey, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Hey, if this is your rookie season with us, uh, we are going through Genesis. Uh, and so we just started not long ago, um, but it's been really rich so far. I'm going to start my timer so I don't go forever. Tonight is going to be a strange passage. Uh, I don't know if you've been reading ahead, if you've been following along, but um, there's a lot of weird stuff that happens tonight. We're going to be talking about giants. We're going to be talking about what's the lead up to the flood. A lot of, a lot of weird stuff happening in, in this passage. But, man, we start talking about the flood and Noah's ark. It is not a happy story. It is not a pleasant story. It is not a kid's story. You know, that's kind of how it's billed is, you know, I remember my teacher growing up, uh, one of my Sunday school teachers, she had like a denim dress with Noah and these happy little giraffes, you know, kind of like precious moment style, you know, right here on the front of her dress. And, you know, like everybody kind of builds the, the Noah and the Ark story as a, as a peaceful, happy story. But when I was a kid, I had a, I had a really graphic picture Bible. And I'm so thankful that my parents got it for me. But it, the picture of Noah and the Ark, like it was usually just kind of half-page illustrations, but this, this was a two full pages doubled of Noah and the Ark. And basically, you could see in the picture, you could see the Ark way back in the background. And it was high, it was kind of lit up by lightning. And there was dark waves all between. And in the foreground, it was just the most desperate scene of people clawing trying to get up on rocks to not drown and someone holding a baby above the water and it, it was just such a dark desperate scene and man so we, we're talking about the flood that's where we're leading up to now you know we're what nine ten generations in when you count Noah and his sons ten generations into the world and it's crazy how corrupt it's gotten I mean, every generation, there's more and more and more corruption. You think about how much it progressed from Adam to his son Cain. Think, think about this. There are a lot of parallels between Adam and Cain's story. They both sinned against God. God came looking for both of them and asked them a question they knew the answer to. Why are you hiding? Did you eat the fruit? The other, where is your brother? And then God cursed both of them. And both of them are sent out from the presence of God. All right, so there's similarities in their stories, but there's huge differences as well where you can see how much sin has progressed in just a generation. You know, Adam is tempted. Adam and Eve are tempted by the snake, but Cain is tempted like we are from within, from sin that's crouching within. Cain posed like he was pleasing to the Lord, and he offered a sacrifice. But then remember, when God didn't accept his sacrifice, he got mad as if God had wronged him. <clears throat> Yahweh approached Cain with grace and help after his sin. These are differences between the two stories. When confronted with sin, Adam deflected it. She gave it to me. Cain outright lied. I don't know where my brother is. And then on top of that, he sassed God. Well, my, bro my brother's keeper? He keeps the sheep. I keep my brother. Is that how it works? Cain bucks back against the curse given to him. Nope, that's too hard. That's too much. They're going to kill me. Man, it's crazy just to think in one generation how bad things have gotten. Wenham says sin is more firmly entrenched. It's, it's really, Cain's not humbly accepting his punishment before the Lord. He's defiant. And you can see that's in one generation. Now we are nine and ten generations away when we hit Genesis 6. 
I think Noah's the ninth generation. And the descendants of Cain, remember last week we looked at the two different lines. You got Cain's descendants and then you got Seth's descendants. And the descendants of Cain just seem to get worse and worse and worse. Even their names don't mention Yahweh anymore. They, they mean things like strong or pretty. No mention of Yahweh. They're a completely self-made people. Now we know Cain's line and Seth's line, they're all separated from God. They're all cursed. Mankind keeps getting worse. You remember that story in Cain's line. There's a guy named Lamech. In Cain's line, there's a guy named Lamech in Seth's line. Two different Lamechs, right? Very different guys. And Lamech in Cain's line, remember he, he, for him, Cain has probably become somewhat of a legend. He names his son after Cain. And he goes on and he, he says to his wives in, in chapter four, y'all remember this. He says to his wives, plural, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I killed a man for wounding me. I killed a young man for striking me. He's bragging about murder just in, a, just in a few generations away. And he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, my revenge is 77-fold. Now, he's probably misunderstood God's judgment and God's grace, but he, he might even think that Cain's untouchable, and Cain might even be preaching that. Cain's got this mark that, that they can't kill Cain wherever he goes, and so Cain might be preaching, hey, I'm untouchable. No one can kill me. And so now Lamech might, I mean, he might be praising Cain, Here's the thing, mankind is getting desperately, desperately, desperately wicked. More and more evil every generation. There are very few that seek God. When we pick up this story, it is a desperate time. Murder is being praised. Sexual sin seems to be praised, and God's grace is being trampled on. It is a desperate survival in this ancient world. It's a world red in tooth and claw. I would say it's like a post-apocalyptic world, but it's literally a pre-apocalyptic world. Like it's what causes the apocalypse here on the world. So that's where we pick up the story here. It's just a desperate survival. Everything violent, everything sexual you can imagine is going on in this world. That's where we pick up the story in chapter six. Verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to him, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Pause. Fair warning. Things are about to get weird, all right? They just are, um, and I think we're leading up to the flood. And to be real, when people want to dismiss Scripture, they usually dismiss the supernatural first. They usually say, oh, I believe the whole thing except for the miracles, that's where we go wrong. I, I know I am a skeptic. I think I'm as skeptical as you can be and still be a Christian. I'm skeptical in general. Like, I don't believe in conspiracy theories at all. Mostly because I don't think people are smart enough to, to keep things hidden. You know what I'm saying? Like, if we can't keep presidential affairs hidden, if we can't keep, like, these giant nations worth of performance-enhancing drug schemes, if we can't keep that hidden, there are no aliens in, in Area 51, you know what I mean? Like, someone would have said something. We're not sharp enough to keep that sort of thing hidden. Like, I don't believe the earth is flat. I don't believe in QAnon. I, I think anyone who believes in those things are foolish, you know, at, or just fooled by a YouTube algorithm. But that being said, I believe the Bible's true. All of it. Even the weird parts. Even the miraculous parts. Even the outlandish parts. The creation, I believe it. The flood, I believe it. The resurrection, I believe it all. So let me give just a caveat for tonight. Every verse in here is hard, period. 
Every verse in here is hard. Every verse in this little, we're gonna go through uh, verses one through eight. Every single verse, there's like two or three different ways you can interpret it. And you know what? On all these verses, we can agree to disagree. There's gonna be different people in the church that are like, nah, I think it's this. Okay, great, great. We're all still believers, good to go. You know, like we, we can all still agree to disagree on some of these things. The main point remains. Mankind is getting worse and worse and worse, and God's judgment on sin is coming. Now, so we're entering into here, and, it's, and it's, when you think about what's the sin so bad that it causes the flood? Because you read this verse, and you're like, what's so bad about this? Look, mankind began to multiply on the face of the land. Daughters were born to them. Sons of God saw that daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as wives, any that they chose. And we're like, okay. What's going on? Why is it bad? All right, let's just read the rest. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever, for he's flesh. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. One of the most scary verses in the Bible. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. I am sorry that I made them. That is a heavy, heavy passage. What's going on? What's the sin? Like, because it seems like, all right, these people are getting married. We still do that. What's, what's the deal? I want to dive in. You know, last night before I went to bed, I told Amy, I don't think I'm going to dive into all that stuff. I, yeah, I think, I don't know if it's helpful for our church for me to dive in and say, all right, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man? And like, why is that important? I, I just don't think it's helpful. All right, good night. I go to sleep and next morning I wake up and I'm like, I think I got to do it. All right, so we're going to go through it, but we're going to go through it quickly. And so, we don't have small groups this week, most of you. So if you have questions, y'all can email me, Zach at SWOutfitters.com. Any questions, seriously, any que even if they're off the wall, y'all just hit me up, and I'll be glad to answer them kindly and intelligently. All right, here's the question. Thank you. <laughs> Who are the sons of God? Verse 2. Man began to multiply. Good, they're supposed to. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. What is the big deal? I think to realize what the big deal is, we got to think of who is this? Who are the sons of God? Now, <clears throat> since it's the lead up to the flood, it's important to dig. It says, uh, well, there's three possibilities. I'm going to have a little PowerPoint up here just so you can see sons of God, and here are the options. Option number one, the sons of God were ancient rulers, ancient kings. And the sin then, if it is referring to ancient rulers or ancient kings, all right, we're going to get super nerdy. I usually do, but this is getting extra nerdy. If it was referring to rulers or kings, then the sin would center around forcing women into marriages. Option number two, this is men from Seth's line that were mixing with women from Cain's line. 
Sons of God, Seth, Slon, well, daughters of men, Cain's line. And there the sin would send around men from a quote-unquote holy line, intermarrying with women from a quote-unquote unholy line, even though they're all, in a sense, unholy. All right, the third option, the strangest of the option, is that the sons of God are fallen angels. Now, this sin would be unique because it'd be sinful on both sides, on the angel side, the demon side, or the, uh, and the women's side, but it also would be unique because it produced a unique offspring, Possibly, maybe yes, maybe no. Every single verse has a maybe on it. So those are our three options, and I want to take a detailed look at each of these, the pros and cons for them, so we can look at what exactly is the corruption that's leading to the, to the flood. All right, y'all good? All right. Let's go into option one. The sons of God are rulers, Kings, and that would mean that the daughters of men equals all females. Just daughters of men out there, the sons of God. I'm going to give some for and against for each one of these views, all right? Here's some arguments for the uh, sons of God equaling rulers and kings. Psalm 82, uh, there, that's a verse where some rulers or judges might possibly be described as sons of God. Uh, second one is David is described as God's son in 2 Samuel and Psalm 2. So in this view, many would say that these are rulers who taken wives in as concubines or as forced wives. Now, even if the Bible doesn't really describe rulers as sons of God, there is later precedent from history where a lot of pagan nations believe their rulers to be sons of gods. All right? So that's argument four. Let's give some argument against uh, the sons of God being rulers. Uh, one is the women seem to be judged for their side. If they're forced into these marriages, why would they be judged? Second one, there isn't really a lot of biblical evidence. Even that Psalm 82 passage is pretty obscure. It says, you are gods, same word, but then it says sons of the most high, different word. Um, in addition, a third reason against, why would a great title like sons of God be ascribed to evil rulers? Doesn't seem to make sense. Finally, if you believe that this union, whatever it, is, whatever it is, produced giants? How could rulers and women produce giants? All right, for and against, for the rulers. We're gonna go through all three of these. Pause for a second. Is this making sense? Everybody hanging so far? It's getting, it's gonna be, some of you young guys are like, to be honest, no. Okay, great, all right. Zach at Esther. All right, so second view. Sons of God equal Men from Seth's line. That would mean the daughters of men equal females from just Cain's line. And then the sin would be the intermarrying. All right, let me give some arguments for. This, if you say the sons of God are men from Seth's line, that does keep the textual context because he's been contrasting the two lines. That's great. The second one is this cuts down on the mythological language, which is great, except if you got a problem with mythological language, you should know all animals are about to enter into a giant boat and then the door's gonna be closed by God and they're gonna float on the surface while humanity dies. So if you're worried about mythological language, you're gonna have a problem with the rest of this chapter, all right? Um, third one, uh, argument for these being the godly men from Sethlon. This is the view that Julius Africanus and Augustine and many of the church leaders through the Reformation believed. Let me give some arguments against it. Yes, Sethlon is godly, but it's not all godly. They're still sinful people. The second argument against is, why would daughters of man refer to Cain's line and not just all ladies, or at least non-Sethite ladies? Third one, if it's just men marrying women, why would this practice be condemned? You know, there is 
For sure, com- there are commands in the Old Testament prohibiting God's people mingling with not God's people, but we haven't had any of those commands yet. So why, why would this be condemned? Finally, once again, if you believe that giants came out of whatever this union is, how did giants come out of this? All right, last view. This is the last one. Some people believe the sons of God refers to fallen angels, all right? Now, here's some support for that view. This phrase, sons of God, most often refers to angels. It just does. In uh, Job, three different places. In Psalms, two different places. It calls the angels sons of God. The second uh, argument for is that this is the oldest view. It's held by Justin, Origen, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and others. Even the uh, translators of the Septuagint uh, seem to support this. Uh, third uh, view, if this isn't fallen angels, why would this text make such a big deal about just men taking wives? That's been going on for centuries. Uh, and then I think I have the last one here. Can you click on that next one? Uh, if this is fallen angels and women, it arguably could produce some giants. Now, here's some arguments against this being angels. How could holy angels have relations with, a, uh, with sinful people? Well, many people would say these are fallen angels. Let me give a couple more reasons. Adam, you're going to have to leave me on these. Yeah, what about the fact that angels don't marry? Another one. What about the fact that angels seem to be spirit? How could they interact that way? The last one. How would men be judged in the flood if it was something angels did? All right. There's a lot of different possibilities here. And I think it's necessary for us to dive in just so we see what, what the heck are we dealing with? Like, what is the big deal? Now, to be honest, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you land on this. The outcome is the same. The outcome is the same, that God is judging people who are getting more and more and more sinful. Whatever these unions were, they were outside of God's commands. They were outside of God's will. So we can agree to disagree. Let me just hit a couple of those reasons on the angels uh, just to answer those real quick. Yes, we know the angels don't marry. At Matthew 22, it says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. Well, this argument would say, if you believe that these are fallen angels, that these angels aren't in heaven. They've fallen. And so these angels could potentially. What about the argument that angels are, um, are spirit, so they can't produce offspring? Well, we do know that in Genesis 19, the angels are eating a meal with Lot. So we know they can at least interact with earthly, uh, earthly elements. In addition, there's the argument, well, men wouldn't be judged for something angels had done. The people who believe that this is angels will say, I think these angels actually were judged for this. And they'll cite two different verses, all right? The first one of these verses is 2 Peter 2, all right? 2 Peter 2 says this, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, he keeps on going. Now that verse says, God didn't spare Noah and those folks, God didn't spare the angels. Could just be coincidental. He could just be saying, angels, when they sinned, God judged them. People, when they sinned, God judged them. But it's interesting that he seems to be linking the time of angels and the time of, or time of angel sin and Noah. Last verse is Jude, verse 6. 
and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as, a, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This verse seems to link unnatural sins in Sodom and Gomorrah, unnatural sexual sins, and potentially unnatural sexual sins with the angels. What do you think? Who y'all think it is? All right, raise your hand. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Seriously, it is intriguing when you start reading through this. Uh, I'll read this real quick. Final thought on this part, whoever you believe the sons of God to be, they were married in a sense to the daughters of men. And that phrasing is likely there to take out the thought that the sons of God were forcing themselves on the women. The women were guilty just like the sons of God. Wenham notes this, certainly the Old Testament law strongly condemns all attempts of mixing of species, mixed crops are prohibited, mixed clothing, uh, mixing with animals, the marrying non-Israelites, all these things are outlawed. So it follows that the union between the sons of God and human women must at least be reprehensible. For in this case, both parties must know it's against the will of the creator who made the world so that everything should reproduce according to its kind. I mean, it's just a hard passage to interpret. It's a hard passage to interpret. There are multiple ways to interpret this, but the main point of the text remains. The creator had created things to run in a certain way. This was contrary to design. It's contrary to design. So look at what he says in verse three. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever. He's flesh. His days will be 120 years. All right, there's two ways to think about this verse. But, it seems to be saying that his lifespan is gonna stop. You remember, at this point, we're going through the primeval history, right? Going through the primeval history, and we're covering tons of time. Those nine generations have spanned so, so many years. It's because their lifespans are so long. Methuselah lived almost 1,000 years. And so here, it seems like he's saying, we're gonna cut the lifespan of man to 120 years. However, a lot of people have problems with that because they're like, Uh, But he kind of didn't because Abraham lived 175. Isaac lived 180. So, well, a lot of people say we should see this as a gradual curse. You remember when man is cursed in the garden, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day that he ate of it, he did not surely die. But that process of death began. Him dying began that day, right? But he gradually eventually died. A lot of people believe that after Jacob, people start living only about 120 years. So maybe it's a gradual decline for the, for the patriarchs. Maybe it's God's displeasure on people. Uh, otherwise, this is just kind of arbitrarily stuck in there. Now, some people believe that 120 years that God's saying, you know what, my spirit will not abide in man forever. In 120 years, I'm bringing the flood. A lot of people believe that's the case, that he's not saying I'm gonna limit their lifespan. I don't think that's the case because there's no evidence for it being 120 years until everything's destroyed. Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men, the men of renown. 
Y'all know what the Nephilim is? Fascinating. So the only other clear biblical reference to the Nephilim is in Numbers 13. Y'all remember the story where Israel's supposed to send out the spies into the promised land? They're supposed to be like, all right, y'all check it out. Come back and tell us, can we beat those guys? And they come back and they're like, heck no, we can't beat those guys. They are huge. And like that verse, it says this, uh, they brought to the people um, of Israel a bad report out of the land that they had spied out saying this, the land which we went to spy it out It's a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw there are of great height. We saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. This is referring to the giants, the giants of old, the Nephilim. Now that word, Nephilim, comes from the root to fall, nephal, which a lot of people say, ah, the fallen angels and other people will say no not fallen angels this is just the rulers that fell upon the women okay whichever way you go it says the nephilim were on the earth in these days and also afterwards when the sons of god came into the daughters of man and bore children to them this verse just like the others can be interpreted two different ways the one way is hey when all this was going on with whatever this intermarriage was You should also know there were giants in the land. Moving on. Okay, that's one way to say it. Or you could say the Nephilim were on earth these days when the sons of God came into the daughters of man they bore children to them. As in, this is how the Nephilim got created. And that, and also afterwards, just little parentheses. My question to y'all is, were the giants created from this union or were the giants just there during the time of this union? I don't know. I I mean, I have opinions. But the argument can be said either way, that these giants were on earth before these marriages take place. In that case, you'd have to say the mention of the giants is just kind of coincidental. Also, there were giants there. You should know. All right. Or it can be said that the giants were created from these unions. In that case, you'd probably have to say it's angels, the fallen ones, who got together with earth girls. And in that case, it was a very corrupt world for sure. All right, earth girls was funny, sorry. All right, let me me lighten it up just a little bit with a weird side note. All right, there's giants before the flood, right? Giants after the flood. How? There's no giants on the boat. How's it happen? Okay, here's what I think. I think, uh, obviously, you got things that skip a generation, like blue eyes, blonde hair, things like that. Your granddaddy might have that, and you might have that. And so things skip a generation all the time. I think that there's giant DNA that's passed. All right, I told you, this is just a side note, just a fun commercial, right? The giant DNA that's passed on the ark, but it has to be, it can't be Noah, you know, that he's not a giant, and his kids aren't giants there. There's probably no intermingling there. So probably this DNA passed through one of his daughter-in-laws. Now, where, the, where do we see giants later on in the Old Testament? What nation? Canaan, what else? Philistines. You know where they both came from? Ham. Remember, Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And Ham, his son, let me get to that page. Hold up, hold up. Okay, here we go. Ham's son is Canaan. 
And Canaan's where we find the giants later on. Ham's grandson is Nimrod, the first one to be called a giant. Ham's other grandson is Casluhim, and those are the people that, the, are, that's who the Philistines came out of. So we, we'd say that if there are giants pre and post flood, there has to be d- DNA that's carried over. Now speculation on these, these things could drive you mad. This seems like, I said at the start, I'm not really into conspiracy theories and stuff, and then I went and told you, I think there's giant DNA on the bike. <laughs> All right, understood. What's the point of this passage? The point of this passage is not who got with who exactly. The point of this passage is not how did the giants come about exactly. The point of this passage is mankind is desperately wicked in need of a rescue. In need of a rescue. Whether it's angels or rulers or Sethites, The point of this passage is that sin corrupts absolutely. The whole world is violent and desperately wicked. So you can see, man, if it's it's rulers, they're forcing themselves on women, forcing them to be married. If it's Sethites, the people of God are intermingling happily with people who do not value Yahweh. If it's angels, it's so unnatural and perverse, like, and, and It's sexual perversion, it's objectification, it's wickedness. You remember Eve, she saw that the fruit was attractive and she took it and consumed it and that was sin. And here, whoever the sons of God are, they saw that the, the daughters of women were attractive and they took and they consumed. And it's sin. At the core is rebellion against the creator. At the center of that rebellion is man with his fist raised in defiance. So, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Listen to this sentence. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. Remember when he made everything, he stepped back and God looked at everything he had made, evening and morning, he declared it good. This is good. This is good. When he made man and woman together, he said, this is very good. Here, he takes a step back and he looks at man and says, every intention of his heart is only evil continually. The darkness has grown from Adam to Cain, Cain to Lamech, Lamech to now. It's grown on the earth, while in reality, the nature of sin has always been totally damning, always been fully degrading, always been completely desperate. Verse six and seven. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Again, this is another theologically packed verse. Did the Lord screw up? Did he mess up and be like, whoops, I should not have made man like that. Let's do a do-over. No, it's not like that at all. I want to read a couple of helpful quotes. One's from a guy named John Piper. In view of the warning in 1 Samuel 15, that the glory, this is from 1 Samuel 15, the glory of Israel will not lie or repent. He is not a man that he should repent. In light of that verse, he says, we are slow to attribute human-like repentance to God. Rather, it's plausible to find a strange repentance that's unlike anything we experience, namely that God regrets what he foreknew, that the human race would fall into sin and be in need of a savior. I propose, he says, that God created the world already feeling both the joy of his final salvation and the grief of the intervening fallen misery. 
When the fallen misery reached a height in Genesis 6, it's not unfitting for God to express this sorrow in the way that he does. John Calvin says this, thinking about the Lord regretted he had made man and it grieved him to his heart. John Calvin says, the grief that's here ascribed to God doesn't properly belong to him, but refers to our understanding of him. Since we can't comprehend him as he is, he has to, in a certain sense, accommodate himself for our sake because it could not otherwise be known in any other way how much God detests sin. The Spirit accommodates himself to our human understanding. What is this saying? First Samuel says, God is not a man that he should repent, which means that God doesn't regret or repent in the way humans do. How do you regret things? Think about the way humans regret. We regret, we repent in a way that we didn't see the outcome of what was gonna happen. We do an action, boop, and then on the flip side we go, oh shoot, I did not know it was gonna turn out like that. I did not know I was gonna feel like this. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know it was gonna be this wrong. I should not have done that, I've made a mistake. We, we repent because we didn't see the outcome of what was gonna happen. See, with God it's very different. He uses words that we can understand, but God knew, and not just knew, God planned the outcome here. God planned the outcome. So when he's saying he repents or regrets, it's in a different way than we repent or regret. He's helping us understand this. It's a way only known by the infinite, sovereign, glorious God. It is grieving to God to see man turn to wickedness. Verse seven, so the Lord said, I will blot out man terrifying I will blot out man who I've created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I made them the one most terrifying verses in the Bible even though he saw and planned this happening because of his own glorious purpose which is eventually the Christ's redemption of man he is the potter and humans are the clay what he's saying is I have made now I will unmake in the beginning, there was chaos over the waters, and I ordered it, and now I will unmake, and chaos of waters is going to engulf everything again. I've made, I'm going to unmake. Man, I will blot out man and animals and creeping things and birds. Why? Why the animals? Like the humans are sinful. Why the animals? Calvin notes this. As the animals were subject to man when he fell, they were drawn with him into the same destruction. See, the earth was like a wealthy home, well-stocked and full of every provision. But now since man has defiled the earth itself with his evil deeds and has corrupted all of its riches, the Lord commanded that the whole house be raised to the ground. This should fill us with a loathing for sin. We can now clearly see how terrible sin is since this punishment extends even to the brute beasts of creation. Say, man has screwed this up. We were to have dominion over the animals, and we have sinned. We have rebelled against the Creator. And times are dark and desperate. Times are violent and sexual. And now all of humanity is doomed, truly doomed. No one can stop God. He will accomplish all his purposes. He will accomplish this destruction. Verse 8. But. It's beautiful. But. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here for us in our last verse tonight is just a little flicker of hope. All of earth has gone astray. Each one has gone to his own way. And here, he's given us a little flicker of hope. 
just a little flicker, the Lord graciously intervenes again. I want you to pause and remember last week. The genealogies. Went through Cain's, then we went through Seth's. There's another Lamech in Seth's line. You remember this? Lamech is Noah's daddy, right? And Lamech, we know he dies five years before the flood happens, okay? So Lamech dies five years before the flood happens, but it's really interesting what he names Noah. The name Noah means rest or relief. And he actually says, let me get to that verse. 529, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He's looking forward to the rescue. See, as creation was going downhill, 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 every, every generation seems to be looking for a rescue. They know they're in desperate need of a rescue. You think about, man, for Adam and Eve, they're told Your seed will crush the serpent's head. Can you imagine them talking to their boys? Guys, if you see a snake, crush it. Do not let it talk. Stomp on its head. Do whatever you have to. And can you imagine how they felt when Abel died? Oh, gosh. We only have one son. And then Cain goes and settles in the land of Nod after murdering his brother they got to be reeling here, thinking, who's going to crush his head? And then all their hopes are in Seth. And their kids have kids, and his kids have kids, and there's no deliverer. Everybody's wicked. Enosh is born. Eve's grandson. Maybe this is him. Nope. Then Kenan. Then Mahalel. Then Jared. Then Enoch, who walked with God, but he wasn't the deliverer. Then Methuselah, the oldest, most blessed man, not the deliverer. Lamech comes about and says, I've had a son. I'm going to name him Rest because, man, this is the one. We can speculate that every generation has said, this is the one. But Lamech actually verbalizes it, which means that Adam and his son and his son were telling the good story of the creator. One is coming. And there's foreshadowing because Noah, one in a couple weeks, he actually does bring rest. He actually does deliver in a sense. But he too needs deliverance because he sits passive in the boat waiting for salvation. He doesn't act it out. God gives the vision. God brings the animals. God shuts the door. God brings the rain. God stops the rain. God dries the earth. We see he needs a deliverance because four verses after God makes a covenant with him, he's drunk and naked in his tent. Even the deliverer Noah, the seventh great-grandson of Eve, he doesn't deliver truly. So the hope keeps going. Maybe this son, Abraham hoped in Isaac. Isaac hoped in Jacob, Jacob and Joseph. Maybe it's David. Maybe it's the shepherd, the youngest son, just like Abel. I mean, all sons of men failed until the son of man came. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus came, and this son did not fail. He came not to be served, but to serve. He was the seed of woman that's going to crush the serpent. I mean, that's what this week is about. Emmanuel, God with us, because the plot twist is the author enters into the story here. That's the huge plot twist. You think about as desperately as men were looking forward to the seed that was going to crush the serpent's head, the serpent himself had to be desperately trying to stop it. I'm going to crush, I'm going to snuff out this seed in Noah's day. I'm going to make the world so wicked, they're going to forget about Yahweh the gracious. He wants to destroy the line of Eve. And then later on in Egypt, I mean, everything God's people narrowed to a funnel of 70 people going in Egypt. And he's like, I'm gonna crush them with slavery. 
Nope, that doesn't work. When they multiplied, I'm going to crush them with genocide. Kill all the male children. I'm going to crush the seed. And then he tries to crush the seed years later in Bethlehem when Herod orders his soldiers to run there and murder the little baby boys. But here's the beautiful part. It's too late because the darkness had already been split in front of Herod's decree, the darkness had been split by thousands of angels screaming glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, peace, peace on earth. So the angels proclaim this time. Not judgment, not chaos, not waters, peace on earth because the promised son had finally come. The finally, this is the one that's gonna give us rest. This is the one that's gonna deliver us. This is the one that's gonna crush the serpent's head. The one that would crush the serpent's head was crushed for our transgressions. He broke the curse by becoming our curse. He was forsaken so we could be adopted. He drank the cup, the flood of God's wrath. He brought peace on earth through a violent death and then he rose so we could rise. The king of kings, the highest of the high, was born in a barn behind a hotel, laying in a feeding trough. He's the hope of the world, the peace of the earth. And that's what we celebrate this week. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this season. Such a weird passage. Lord, I pray that we get benefit out of it and just thinking that you, I mean, the whole earth is desperately wicked without you. There's all kind of strange, perverse things going on, but you keep your promises. You redeem your people. I pray that our hope would be in that, God. Even now, this week, I know this week's hard for some folks. Christmas is difficult for some folks who have lost people who are going through difficult times. I pray that you comfort them. God, thank you for this season where we can stop and not just rejoice that you came, but rejoice that you died. Rejoice that you are our peace, that on earth is not continual judgment, but that you took the judgment so we can get the peace. We're thankful for that, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.